This podcast is brought to you by Huawei Technologies. From devices to telecom infrastructure to cloud computing and convergence solutions, Huawei is rethinking every link in the IT chain to deliver a better future faster. Huawei is proud to offer its Fusion Solar PV solution, a unique approach to integrating, optimizing, and digitizing solar power plants. Installers and developers are buzzing about the product. Learn why at Huawei.com. That's H-U-A-W-E-Y.com. This show is also supported by GTM Squared, a new premium service from Greentech Media. For a ridiculously low price, you can access deep content from our team of editors and analysts that will help you be a better clean tech professional. You're not only going to be supporting your own career, you'll be supporting the team of editors who work very hard every day to keep you informed. For a free trial pass, email squared at greentechmedia.com. And for more information and poke around on the website, go to greentechmedia.com squared. For the week of October 22nd, 2015, this is the Energy Gang from Greentech Media. This week, the life, career, and legacy of Elon Musk. We don't have the man himself on the show, but we do have the next best thing, the author of an intimate biography of Musk. We'll talk with Ashley Vance about his profile of the popular and controversial innovator. Then, ISIS is attacking America's electric grid. Experts say they're not very good at it, but it's yet another example of why grid security is so important. We'll discuss. Finally, we will talk about what this week's elections in Canada mean for the country's energy and climate policy in Washington, D.C. I'm GTM Senior Editor Stephen Lacey. Welcome to the show. Thanks for being here. I'm joined, as always, by Catherine Hamilton of 38 North Solutions in D.C. How are you, Catherine? Doing great. Thank you. It's absolutely beautiful this time of year. And since I'm married to a Mets fan, apologies to Cubbies fans. Uh, it's happy in my house. I think you better apologize to Jigger. <laughs> yeah, I know. That's who I was talking to. <laughs> I'm I'm wallowing in um in my non-alcoholic drink. <laughs> Jigger is in New York. He's the president of Generate Capital. How's your week going so far? Terrible as you just heard. Yeah, right. I uh <laughs> I really thought Back to the Future 2 was going to predict uh the Cubs uh, World Series win correctly. They got a lot of other stuff right though. <laughs> they did. They did. Well, one thing they did not predict was Elon Musk, and, and perhaps some of the things that he's been working on. Uh, we've been trying to get this week's guest on the show for a while, and I'm very pleased to finally have him on. Ashley Vance is a columnist and feature writer for Bloomberg Business Week. He's also author of the new book, the new-ish book, Elon Musk, Tesla, SpaceX, and the Quest for a Fantastic Future. Ashley, welcome to the Energy Gang. Thanks for being here. Thanks so much for having me. Sorry it was uh, a pain <laughs> to make this all happen. No, no, it's uh, that's what happens when you schedule three people with really difficult schedules. Um, we're glad to have you on. You've got so many new insights in this book, partly because you interviewed so many people who have uh, touched Musk in uh, throughout different parts of his life, and partly because you got access to Elon himself when other writers have not. In the, in the opening of the book, you write about this dinner meeting with Musk in which he grills you about the book that you say you're determined to write, whether or not you have his participation. He tests your intentions and, and realizes basically that you're talking to hundreds of people about his life and career, so finally decides to cooperate and open up. How difficult was it getting him involved in the book? It was pretty tricky. <laughs> you know, I had done a cover story on him for Business Week in 2012. And uh, I mean, we had a pretty good rapport coming out of that. And after I saw the Tesla factory and the SpaceX factory in particular and, and interviewed Elon, I, I realized that was kind of the book I wanted to do. And, and so I tried to feel him out on that idea pretty early on. And um, his biggest reaction was that, you know, he was going to write his own book, <laughs> which I thought was... was uh, pretty ambitious given how much stuff he already had on his plate and and I thought that you know if I pushed forward and just kept going that I might um, kind of break his will and get him to cooperate but ultimately it took about 18 months to do that and so there were some uh, there's plenty of moments along that way where I thought you know I just might never get him and I was gonna have to kind of figure out another way to, to go about doing the book there's this paradox here, and Elon like simultaneously doesn't give a shit about what other people think of his vision, and then obsesses over it when it comes to mes messaging. How often did you see those two sides of his personality clash? 
All the time. I mean, that's a good way to describe it. He's a really funny character because completely, like you said, this is a guy who he knows his his life's mission. He kind of decided on this really um, coming out of his making his PayPal fortune and, and has been charging after it ever since. And when he says things like he wants to make a colony on Mars with, you know, not just a handful of people, but thousands or millions of people. I mean, he's dead serious about these things. And if you kind of try to tell him that he's wrong... Um, he really he doesn't care what you think he's going to go and try and do this anyway but he's also he really does care about the way the public perceives him and you see this on twitter all the time i mean he um he responds in sort of a very personal he takes he takes criticisms very personally and and responds to these things on twitter and and i got some of that when the book came out um on the whole, you know, he emailed me privately telling me he thought it was it was accurate and, and pretty well done. He gave me a 95% accuracy <laughs> rating, which, uh, you know, for Elon is pretty high. Um, but then when some of the press really picked up on this idea of what a hard boss he is and pulled out some of the anecdotes from the story, I got some of the... Um, the the ferocity of, of Elon on Twitter and, and in some media stories as well. Since we have limited time here, I think, and we're talking to a largely a business audience, I, I want to discuss how Musk builds and runs his companies. And one of the things that becomes clear is that Musk isn't building electric cars or rockets or solar because it's a business opportunity he stumbled upon. Like these are three things that have been part of this grand vision since he was a pretty young guy. And and a lot of people think that that's what makes him such a visionary, but it also makes him super obsessive, really demanding. Some would say, some would argue abusive to his employees. How does having this grand plan influence what he demands from the products his companies put out and then his employees? Well, I think it shapes the companies in a really major way. If you're talking about SpaceX, yes, they build cheap rockets and and are trying to disrupt the aerospace industry, but it is that grander mission, this idea of of getting to Mars and um, even more than that, you, you know, the the foundation of SpaceX came from Elon going to this NASA website many years ago and seeing that they just had nothing about exploring Mars anymore and and getting really depressed about that. So he took this as kind of um mankind had lost the sense of manifest destiny and exploration and things like that. And so that's really the mission that is is fueling SpaceX, not just for Elon, but for so many of the employees. Gwyn Shotwell is the president of SpaceX, and she runs the day-to-day operations of the company. And when you talk to her, she's just as passionate about getting to Mars as he is. And, and Tesla is the same thing. Yes, they want to make a cool car. They want to have all the latest software and sort of push the industry there. But it's it's really this religion around electric vehicles. And again, it's the same thing. J.B. Straubel, who's the chief technology officer there, he was pining after electric cars before he even met Elon. And, and he stayed. And what you see with both J.B. and Gwyn and many of the employees is they put up with a lot of, there's a lot of pros that come with working with Elon and a lot of cons and they put up with the cons because they are as big of believers in these ideas as he is. And so, you know, I mean, what I found time and again was that, um, I think he's able to get more out of his employees really than just about any other CEO I've ever run across because of this, these huge missions that the companies are after. And it was really funny. I mean, some of the, I talked to a lot of people who had been fired by Elon and they would say, negative things about him, but almost every single one of these people at the end still had this begrudging respect for him and the mission that he was after. Well, it seems like here's a guy with this incredible vision who also knows how to write the code. I mean, there's it's this amazing ability to do both things and this voracious appetite to know more about how things work. And so I would think it would be hard if you're an employee, you have to know everything, or at least you have to know the solution to everything, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, the expectations are very high. <laughs> and uh, I mean, there, there's a couple of cases in the book where people come to him and and it, the worst place to be is on this kind of critical path which is the one thing they've determined at either SpaceX or Tesla at any given time that's kind of blocking the company from getting where it wants to go and that's usually where Elon puts his attention and you are expected this this might be a seemingly impossible thing but you're expected to know how to solve it or at least figure out a way and Elon is sitting over your shoulder uh 
monitoring your every move until you fix this problem. And and the, obviously not everyone can always live up to this, but I did find, especially in the case of SpaceX, the the employees were they're so capable in the, this this atmosphere. It's high pressure, but it really did, especially in the early days of the company, pull an incredible amount of work and really high class work out of these people. It's it's um it's very interesting to sort of hear what they went through. So Ashley, I think I have a a couple of questions for you. I, you know, I think first of all, great book. I really thought that I got to learn more about Elon as the man. Um, the part where I thought it was slightly lacking was um, understanding Musk's uh, technical choices, right? I mean, we're really heralding him up as somebody who really knows the difference between A, B, or C on the pathway to reaching his goal, whether it's getting to Mars or whether it's getting to a sellable electric car. I think um, I'm, I'm just trying to figure out whether you got any insights as to whether he really made the right choices, whether it was Panasonic around the Gigafactory or whether it was around, you know, the different technologies he cho- he chose around SpaceX and some of his competitors using other technologies. The same thing's true within Tesla, where, you know, I think that Consumer Reports gave him a pretty damning score on his ability to make the right technical choices around serviceability of cars. Um, you know, like, where do you grade him on that? Well, uh, there's you know there's a huge degree of learning on the job for him. I mean, this is a guy who came from the software world doing software startups and ends up having to get into really complex manufacturing. And I think early on, he even says so in the book. He, I think he thought it was probably going to be easier than than he thought to to do some of this stuff. Like when SpaceX starts out, they essentially want to be kind of the Southwest of space and really just an assembler of parts made by other companies. And then as he he gets into the business, he figures out that the only way he's really going to reduce costs is if they start making a lot of things in-house. And so that means he's got to learn how to make a rocket end-to-end from scratch. And and he had no experience. This is He, he learned aerospace by reading textbooks <laughs> by poolside at the, the Hard Rock Hotel in Las Vegas. And um, so a lot of it was learning on the job. When I talked to some of the best engineers at both companies, the feedback I often got was um, his track record's probably about 50-50 or maybe a little higher on some of the key technology decisions, but that he sticks with them. And and so for better or worse, you see something like in the case of the Model S with the, the door um, handles that go flush with the car. That's a, an instance where Elon was very insistent on having this thing. This was a design choice. The engineers early on told him this was a really horrible idea. We've solved door handles many, many years ago. Why complicate this thing on an already complex car? And you see now in that consumer reports, it's an issue that's ongoing. We still have problems with these things. On the other hand, it's one of the most striking features of the car. As one of the engineers said, if it's a gimmick, it's a gimmick that's worked. It's sold a ton of cars. And so, I, you know, I think on the whole, I mean, Given that he was new to so much of this stuff, I think his track record speaks really well for his decision making. But but he is 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 still a work in progress on this stuff. Right, but you can't really give him an award for you know reading a lot of textbooks, right? I mean, he either moves us from government based space exploration to um, private sector space exploration, which Jeff Bezos is trying to do, and Richard Branson's trying to do, and others are trying to do. Or he's trying to move us from gasoline-powered vehicles to electric vehicles, which BMW and Audi and others are trying to do as well. Or he's trying to bring us from coal power to solar power through Solar City, which, of course, Sunrun and lots of other folks are trying to do. I mean, like he either like is actually making the decisions to put himself into a place where he's solving these problems, or he's sort of like you know bringing his considerable star power, which I think is extraordinary, and getting people to notice for the first time, which is cool, but it doesn't, that doesn't in and itself solve the problem, right? I guess. I mean, the, uh, I'm certainly not here to like sort of defend Elon or anything. He can speak for himself and, and I'm not an Elon fanboy, but the, uh, the, I mean, if you bringing up Jeff Bezos and Richard Branson, for example, I mean, look at what Elon's done com- moving the aerospace industry forward compared to what they've done. The SpaceX went from being a complete joke in the aerospace industry to now Arian Spas, 
the Chinese, the Russians have all had to come up with responses, both lowering their cost structure dramatically and coming up with reusable rocket plans that had been shelved for many years. And so um, I think it would be grossly unfair to to undercut anything that he's done there. And the same thing with electric cars. I mean, I doubt any of the major car makers would be having serious electric car plans at this point unless Tesla had been a success. Um, so, you know, I think if he's... So, still has a ton to prove. I mean, we have to see the reusable rockets. We have to see a mainstream electric car. Otherwise, some of this is a bit gimmicky in some ways. Um, but if nothing else, he's he's already pushed these industries forward that had really grown staid and complacent and, and uninspiring. And so I give him credit for that. When you were reporting this, how did you separate the hype and the gimmick from the reality of what he's doing? Because Elon is so well known for setting these ridiculous goals publicly, saying they're going to achieve an incredible cost reduction or some performance target. And they're usually, they they very often, his companies very often achieve those goals, but years after Elon claims they would have. Um, describe why he sets those targets. And, and um, you know, how can we separate that hype from reality? Like, are you pretty skeptical when he sets certain targets publicly? Pretty skeptical. Yes, <laughs> there is what I like to refer to as Elon time, which is is different to everybody else's time. He, you know, I mean, he talks about this in the book, which I was kind of surprised that he actually addressed it and kind of copped to uh, to being wildly off on on some of his predictions. SpaceX, their very first press release is pretty comical. They start around 2001, and and their first release says that within 18 months they're going to build a rocket from scratch and launch it and ultimately it takes about seven or eight years for them to actually pull that off and elon says you know he he's usually about 200 percent off on timing and he's trying to get down to uh 20 off i've never fully understood why he does this to himself because the press it just creates this this horrible problem for investors and the press that he constantly has to address i think in his head he is is optimistic by nature and that he kind of pictures that there are thousands of little Elons in his company that are going to execute flawlessly on everything and work 24 hours a day for years on end. And, and he kind of makes these calculations in his mind. Um, and the it's a real problem. It's SpaceX. The, the employees talk about having to fudge all these timelines to kind of please him, and then they have to go over to the companies that are actually buying the satellite contracts and give them kind of the real timeline for when things are going to happen. And I would have thought that over time he would get better and more reserved with this stuff, but he actually seems to almost be going the opposite way. I, th I think he... I think he doesn't want to sort of let people down and he's starting to sort of believe in 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 the Elon myth himself and and so keeps setting this bar really high. I think it's crazy. So one of the folks he brought in uh, to help on the business side was Jeremy O'Connell that you talked about, who was really a public policy expert and was able to help with the loan guarantee from Department of Energy, that $465 million that they were able to pay back early. But what struck me about that was that it didn't seem – that before then, um, Elon had focused much on public policy and how policy can impact business. And I just wonder if you ever, ever had a conversation with him, since I'm a policy person, about policy or even politics. I, I get the impression that politics would be not something he would want to engage in, but I'm just curious if you ever had a conversation about that. And of course, he's been sucked into them through the loan guarantee program and his uh, use of subsidy programs generally. Right. It's a very we did talk about it, and it's a super complex issue for him. He's all three of the businesses that he's involved in obviously have huge um, all these incumbents, and and he, the government plays a huge role in all of them. I, you know, politically speaking, he initially I think tried to deal with Washington as little as possible and then over time had to start putting a few people in DC to handle some of these issues he still has far less than his competitors do and I've never quite understood that either because it seems like a uh, somewhere he'd want to invest a little bit more um, you know he he's dined at the White House with President Obama probably more than just about anyone and and the Republicans seem to have noticed that and and generally have a 
pretty big distaste distaste for Elon in in my experience. But when you go look at his campaign contributions, whether it's from him personally or the companies, he seems to try to scatter it among Republicans and Democrats pretty easily. I think he's ended up being among the people in Silicon Valley who who just abhor dealing with Washington and treat Washington pretty badly on the whole. He's actually been more adept than um, many of the folks there. But but again, um, he's he's benefiting these days, I think, from his rising star power. You don't want to be the guy in Washington in a lot of cases kind of being on the wrong side of history and fighting Elon on some of this. And he's also benefiting that his companies are finally doing well. And, and he's got factories in California and New York and Texas and Nevada. So some very powerful states. He's employing tens of thousands of people. And so where he used to be the underdog, he's now able to command um, a lot more influence in Washington. And so I, I think that's finally starting to benefit him. You don't talk as much about Solar City in the book as you do SpaceX and Tesla. And Solar City, of course, is trying to dominate every part of the the solar value chain, similar to um, you know what Tesla and SpaceX are, are trying to do. I mean, I think they're a little bit more focused, but he tries to control a lot of the pieces of the value chain within those areas of the business. And and solar is no different. It's just this this obsession with trying to get everything perfect. Many were really surprised, including myself actually, when Solar City moved into solar manufacturing. But it made so much more sense after reading the book because of that obsession with getting everything right. Is Solar City run the same uh, obsessive way as Tesla and SpaceX? You think? To some degree, I mean, I you know I spent less time on Solar City because I think it gets Elon's involvement in the company sometimes gets overblown. He he definitely helped come up with the founding idea and he's chairman, but he has no time to to kind of deal with Solar City on anything remotely like a day to day basis. And and the Rive, uh, his cousins, the Rive brothers, run the company, and and I think. They're all cut from a similar cloth. You could see it even in the book. I talk about them growing up. They lived near each other, and they were doing all these kind of entrepreneurial businesses as, as kids. And the whole family is this like extraordinarily entrepreneurial sort of family. And um, I think you know the Rives. I think on their own would be obsessive about all this stuff and want to control things end to end. But they do hold Elon up as something of a model. And you know, I, th- I think. They seem very convinced that they can make more power-efficient um, panels than anyone else. But again, I hold that up with a bit of skepticism. I think it's sort of in that Elon time kind of category as to whether or not they really are that much more efficient. So when you, when I read biographies, um, you know, I, I'm I'm trying to look for sort of the special sauce or the the theory of change or the you know sort of. Um, you know, the way in which people operate that you can sort of emulate, right? So, I mean, what are the takeaways, right? If somebody really wants to be like Elon or, you know, change the world or, you know, pursue a big idea, what is the sort of takeaway lesson that Elon's giving us? Right. Yeah, people ask me a lot, how do you be like Elon? But I think, I mean, there's some degree to which you would not want to be like Elon. First of all, he had a pretty miserable childhood that seems to have a pretty big impact on on how he's turned out and kind of the level of risk and and suffering he's able to to put up with he lives his life in a way that i think very few people would want to do i mean he honest to god is working 7 days a week it's had a horrible toll on his marriages and and i think takes a toll on his his kids as well and um I don't know that that many people would want to do that. My my biggest takeaway while I was doing the book was that I did I did come away really impressed with how he he has decided what's important to him in life and he set a couple of of sort of life objectives and throws his all into them. When I finished the book and I sat back, I kind of reevaluated my life and, and was like, look, you, we really are. It really brought home how finite our time is on this planet and how much you can get done if you put your mind to it. And so I tried to sort of prioritize the things that I'm into and decided to um, get some of the more frivolous things out of my life. And, and really, um, I don't know if like meditated is the right word, but I really sat down and thought for like a week about, okay, you know, what do I want to do in the, the near term and the long term? I think that's what he's very good at. I don't think I would ever live my life fully in the Elon way. But that that was my my big takeaway is, is that um, 
I think we're all more capable than we give ourselves credit for and, and that we can kind of strive to do more. Elon is often compared to Steve Jobs, but as you, you pointed out, that, you know, they go about things kind of differently. Elon likes to talk about his strategy very publicly and, and set public goals, whereas Steve Jobs often worked, be, worked behind the scenes and then uh, unveiled some big project that they had been working on. And that's, you know, in Apple's DNA. And, and uh, you know, but, but many do compare Musk with a guy like Henry Ford or Steve Jobs. And he's using that vision that he has to build stuff that is potentially world changing. And and that's a hole that is, um, you know, a gaping hole in Silicon Valley that many lament. Do you see him that way as someone who uh, is is different from most of Silicon Valley and doing something meaningful, whether or not he succeeds or fails, that he's filling a necessary gap? I do, for sure. That's kind of why I wanted to do the book. I've covered the Valley for 15 years. I'd grown increasingly cynical with where things are heading. It's become a region consumed with entertainment services and consumer apps. The VCs are more and more reluctant to fund long-term difficult things. And I was getting really depressed. I mean, that's why, you know, when I walked into the SpaceX factory for the first time, I expected to see kind of a handful of people working on one rocket and what I found was thousands of people mass producing a rocket in the middle of Los Angeles at a time when we're told that it's impossible to manufacture things in the United States. He's, he's building stuff in the most expensive regions in the U S and, um, again, a ton, he's, he's still got to prove a ton, but to me, this was a revelation and so refreshing to see someone who was trying to take, some of the best practices of Silicon Valley, moving faster, advanced software, um, a flat structure in the companies and applying these to industries that, that were not at all wired to work this way. And it's been effective. And, and um, you know, I get, I used to cover semiconductors. And so I have a real soft spot for, for companies that manufacture things and that make really difficult things. And um, I wish... I get depressed that we have entire classes of computer science graduates from Stanford going to Google and Facebook to essentially um, get us to click on on more ads when a lot of these people in the past might have been physicists and chemists and and pushing material science and and energy and all kinds of things forward. And so, yeah, I mean, I kind of question where our best and brightest are going these days and think, if nothing else, at least Elon... um, provides a model of maybe a different path. The book is called Elon Musk, Tesla, SpaceX, and the Quest for a Fantastic Future. It was written by Ashley Vance, our guest, and a columnist and feature writer at Bloomberg Business Week. Superbly written profile. Uh, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. That was fun. I appreciate it. Let's pause for a moment and talk about our new sponsor, Huawei Technologies. Huawei is a leading global information and communications technology provider operating in 170 countries, serving more than one-third of the world's population. Huawei has a new product called Fusion Solar PV, which combines cutting-edge IT technologies and power electronics for digitizing solar power plants. The Fusion Solar PV solution is designed to take the whole PV plant as an entity and make improvements throughout the whole process, from construction to maintenance. It can optimize initial investment, reduce maintenance costs, increase power generation, and boost the overall rate of return. Learn more about Huawei's Fusion Solar PV solution at Huawei.com. That's H-U-A-W-E-I.com. Huawei, building a connected world of endless possibilities. Our cooling diplomatic ties with Russia, complex relationship with China, and violent presence in the Middle East are not just foreign policy issues. They are also tied directly to energy here at home. Over the years, we've seen reports of state-sponsored hacks out of Russia and China that have infiltrated the U.S. grid and industrial systems. This month, U.S. security officials warned that the extremist militant group ISIS has also been targeting the grid. They haven't been successful yet, but it once again brings grid security into the spotlight. So how worried should we be? Catherine, you worked for a utility. You worked on these issues in some capacity while at the GridWise Alliance. Does this make you any more nervous? 
Yeah. So when I saw those headlines, I, I did get nervous because usually, you know, you hear about the usual suspects that you mentioned, you know, three or four states that have some pretty sophisticated ability to hack into systems. Uh, so I called a friend of mine who is a cyber expert and has been doing this for years. And he said, look, it, it does make a good headline, but we don't even have evidence of if they're doing anything. And then what does hacking the grid mean for what they're doing there? He said there are kind of two things. One is messing with the utility website, which a lot of people can do. It's not that hard. The other is really getting into industrial control systems. He said that is much, much harder. These guys are new entrants into the world of cybersecurity. They have a long way to go to be a mature and significant threat. And then he said there there are tools. Um, there's something called Metasploit that is one of these tools that's been created that helps people learn how to hack faster. But he kind of thought right now with ISIS, there's really no evidence that they're anywhere near the same level of sophistication as some of these states. Yep. Uh, the real worry here is not ISIS, in my opinion. It's it's kind of how utilities are dealing with this, particularly like small municipal utilities. There are really limited budgets for IT security. You might have like a couple people working on this. And it's so difficult to parse through the different threats that utilities get every day and to try to make sense of them. And if you talk to security experts in this space, I think they're worried less about the potential of one specific massive threat or a group like ISIS and more worried about how utilities are structured internally and their ability to adequately deal with them as they increase. And a while back, earlier this year, Jeff St. John, our grid editor, wrote this really alarming article that I recently reread. And after installing monitoring devices on SCADA systems, the Nebraska Municipal Power Pool monitored nearly 4 million probes on its network in a few weeks. And they had no idea. And these small utilities that are part of that pool, they don't have any resources really to make sense of those potential threats and really find the handful that are dangerous. So, you know, I don't think we're, we're what we're talking about here is not a problem directly related to ISIS necessarily. Um, there are lots of other potential threats, like you said, Catherine, state-sponsored uh, attacks. And then to me, the big worry is these the, the security at smaller utilities and how they manage some of those threats. Yeah, he did say attribution is really, really tough because there are all different ways to masquerade who you are. So you might it might be an IP address in one country, but the person is from somewhere totally different. So you don't even know exactly where it's coming from. But there are efforts with utilities, um, including the co-ops and munis, as well as the larger ones to really work together and share information um, through the NERC process. And there's also another sister process through Department of Energy, where they're bringing together the equipment manufacturers, um, you know, like the, the, the folks who manufacture all the equipment that's on the grid, like Siemens and ABB and GE and those guys who are all also trying to share information um, and technologies and best practices. So there are a lot of efforts going on, even among utilities that are smaller and less funded to share information. What about their yeah. ability to pay for, for cybersecurity? So I've seen some figures floated around. Utilities are likely to spend between 7 and $14 billion on cybersecurity by 2020. It's really expensive to run diagnostics and monitor all these threats. You have to hire outside staff. Utilities have to find a way to pay for them. Is that a, a major issue when thinking about rate cases, Catherine? Yeah, but I also think you have to do a risk analysis of like where exactly, how much protection do you really need? I mean, you don't need it at the meter level, you need it, you know, where, where are the levels do you need at the substation at the, on the transformers, where do you really need to build it in? And the more you're able to pre uh, wire it, um, or hardwire it into some of these systems. And of course, then you have to constantly update it because technology changes, um, the more you're able to keep up with it and reduce the cost, I would think. But yeah, it's definitely would be a consideration. I would think when you're looking at what it costs to run the system. Yeah, I mean, DOE just funded $12.2 million into um, the securing Center for Securing Electric Energy Delivery Systems. And so there's a lot of good work being done there. And when I talk to you know the folks at Con Ed and National Grid about it, they actually have an active partnership where they're working with other utilities around the country revealing you know any major sort of hack um, efforts that are happening on their systems, including customer data. Um, and so I do think these guys are on top of it. At the same time, um, you know, I think where Wellinghoff came out, which, you know, I, I agree with John on that, is it's, I think it's going to be more physical infrastructure problems that we have than, than, um, than cyber, right? I mean, like the, 
the blackout that occurred in Palo Alto back in 2013, Department of Homeland Security just came out with information they thought it was an insider job, and that was just one guy with a high-powered rifle. Do you worry about... I don't mean to be like a fear monger here or anything, but do you worry about people like flying planes into nuclear facilities like many were talking about after 9-11? No. In fact, they've done a study and they've shown that flying a plane into a nuclear power plant would be fine because nuclear power plants are actually built to withstand that. Oh, really? I haven't seen that. Yeah. So I don't think that's really the problem. And and also like most nuclear power plants in the U.S. are not close enough to um, like to, close to coastlines such that um, they'd be affected by tsunami-like stuff either. So our nuclear power plants, I think, are pretty safe. What I'm more concerned about is that this is a cost-benefit analysis, right? I think that when you think about the economics of microgrids, you can imagine for people who care deeply about always on power for their economic security, you I mean, being able to run their factories or their casinos or whatever it is, that they may decide to move to microgrids even if it costs slightly more just because they're less susceptible to these kinds of hacks. I don't think we should really downplay any major outage or some of these cyber threats, but it is helpful to separate some of these worries from the reality. It's very real. I mean, it's clear that hackers of all types are, have been trying to infiltrate the grid for years. I remember at Nehruk last year, someone said, uh, there are two types of utilities, those that have been hacked and those that don't know they've been hacked, which I thought was a good (laughs) quote. And then I read in a story recently, someone from the CEC, the California Energy Commission said, if you're a utility today, depending on your scale, you're under attack at this moment. So look, these are real threats. But, you know, and particularly with more smart devices in the home and on the edge of the grid, that concern does get more important. If you remember our conversation about the security of Nest thermostats from last year, the expert we talked with said he worried about maybe a cascading series of hacks that stem from unprotected devices in the field, whether it be in the home or at the edge of the grid. And it's, it's, but it's unlikely that these types of hacks would result in bringing down a massive chunk of the grid, given how disparate and patchwork that infrastructure is. So I don't think we should be any less cautious about these hacking efforts, but we should remember that we're not look, likely looking at a situation where we see a massive cascading blackout across the country, because, of course, we don't have a national grid either. So, Yeah, and we've been working on this for a number of years. When I was uh, running the Gridwise Alliance and we were getting all this, you know, billions of dollars for stimulus, there was a lot of worry from Department of Homeland Security about these devices and the increased, you know, IT and communications ability. And, I mean, in the end, we, we've put, and it's not the end really, but we've put together a lot of processes like Jigger said, DOE, NERC, Department of Homeland Security, all the utilities are working on this. It's it's constantly evolving because this is a world that consistently gets more and more sophisticated, but, um, but there are processes in place and people are working on it night and day. Let me flip the question around, Jigger. Do solar installers and developers that are putting increasing intelligence into their um, into their power electronics, is that a concern? Obviously, security is generally a concern, and they're building up their security efforts in any way they can. But like, are they talking in a big way about potential security issues when you think about how much more intelligent distributed energy systems are getting? Yeah, but it's not the distributed energy systems that people are worried about. Um, so, you know, I think that, for instance, in Hawaii, um, Enphase made some over-the-air software adjustments to their inverters that allowed Hawaiian utilities more flexibility within Enphase inverters. So people are worried that using that approach would, um, you know, that it could be used to, you know, hack into all of those systems and shut them down. But I, I'm not sure people are that worried about residential solar or distributed solar. I think people are far more concerned about large-scale solar systems because, you know, for some of these large-scale solar systems on some of the feeders that they're on, they're now part of the grid, uh, in quotes. And, you know, people are actually depending on those big, you know, 500-megawatt solar farms um, as they manage the grid. Um, and if those inverters can be remotely controlled and shut down, you could see, you know, how you create an imbalance on the grid, which, you know, if you remember in San Diego, that occurred uh, last year, not from solar, but for something else. And it took the it took the utilities over, I think, two days to shut everything down and turn everything back on. Well, certainly security concerns we need to all think about. And perhaps ISIS is not the biggest threat. Although President Obama did once say that they were the JV squad, and he's eating those words. Let's turn to Canada now. 
Energy and the environment go together like paddles and canoes. That statement, which sounds like the tagline of a Mr. Rogers segment, came from Canada's new Liberal Prime Minister, Justin Trudeau. In national elections this week, Trudeau unseated Prime Minister Stephen Harper, who has been the leader of the Conservative Party since 2004. Harper was despised by many environmentalists. While in office, he pulled back from climate commitments, staked Canada's energy future almost exclusively on tar sands, and became irate with the Obama administration for delaying the Keystone XL pipeline. By all accounts, Trudeau will reverse many of Harper's policies. That is a welcome change for many concerned about the environment and also a positive sign for U.S.-Canada relations. Jigger, what are the biggest changes you see coming from a liberal government on energy or climate? Well, I mean, I think that Ontario in particular has done a lot of really cool stuff as well as British Columbia in terms of supporting renewable energy. Um, Quebec has done a little. Um, Alberta has, you know, really, I think, been a laggard in many of these areas. And my sense is with the cost reduction of solar and wind in particular, um, as well as, you know, the hydro that 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 Canada has, um, that there's a tremendous amount of work that can be done to accelerate that back up in a cost effective way. I think under Harper, a lot of the best practices just weren't being shared um, across all the provinces. Um, you know, Canada runs very similarly at to the U.S. where most of this policy has to be done at the province level, um, as the federal government doesn't have that much control over electricity. But um, but they can provide real leadership in this area. And the other big thing in Canada is Canada is, um, you know, very multicultural. And I think under Harper, there was not a lot of um, respect for what local communities wanted, what the First Nations wanted, what some of the other community um, or organizations really cared about. And I think under Trudeau, you're going to see a lot more inclusiveness. Yeah, I reached out to a friend who does energy storage in Canada and asked him what he thought this would mean. And just as you said, sort of the overarching leadership, the fact that this the country will now be poised to have a much more positive impact and be more than a passive participant in Paris. I mean, in Copenhagen, Canada was ridiculed on a daily basis for the bad policies that Harper was was promulgating. But I think that will change going into Paris. But the, the one thing that um, my friend mentioned was that in Alberta, the far left party, the NDP, got the majority. And he said that is going to be a dramatic shift. That's the that is the um, province that has the most oil and gas. The NDP is opposed to the KXL. This should be a major shift in Alberta um, and a focus on greenhouse gas emissions and taxing on oil and gas. So he thought that was the biggest outcome of this. But in six months since Rachel Notley got uh, you know, elected in Alberta, she sort of walked back a lot of her positions, right? She's like, well, we need to shut down oil sands. Well, actually, we'll do it over time. And then she finally came out with a declaration that we think we can get off of fossil fuels in Alberta by the end of the century. But the people of Alberta clearly do support climate change efforts. In a poll leading up to the elections, uh, 56% of respondents uh, in the province of Alberta said that they they thought it was important for the national government and Alberta's government to fight climate change. Uh, 48% said that the tar sands are already big enough. Those are pretty striking numbers. Now, they were, uh, it was a poll from an independent organization for the Pembina Institute, and the Pembina Institute does do great work, but they're, of course, environmental advocates, so you have to take some of these uh, questions with a grain of salt. But they are pretty stark numbers. And I think, um, you know, that that was a major issue for Harper going into the elections with, and let's be clear here, this has to do with the price of oil dropping. But he did stake Canada's entire energy future on tar sands. And the economic turmoil that has hit the country and, and the province of Alberta uh, probably would have still been as bad if he had diversified the energy approach. But given what people were saying in the lead up of, to elections about the need to act on climate and develop new sources of energy, I think the perception might have helped Harper going into the elections. Does that make sense? It does. I, you know, I guess I just this this is a rehash of an old conversation that we've had on the podcast, which is that I the thing that bothers me the most is, you know, Harper was very passionate about doing exactly what he wanted to do, which was to really slow down climate change solutions deployment and really increase the investment in the, you know, the tar sands, oil sands of Alberta. I think that 
it's not clear to me that Trudeau, just like Jay Inslee and other, you know, folks of his sort of, um, you know, persuasion are just as passionate on the other side, right? It's one thing to say that they believe climate change is real and needs to do something about it. It's another thing for them to do what Ontario has done and, and said, we're shutting down all of our coal plants and figuring out how to be 100%, you know, zero emission. Um, that well, takes but real guts. Yeah, but Ontario can do that because it has a ton of nuclear and hydro. Yeah, but so does the rest of Canada. Canada's in over 60% hydro. So, I mean, like, I mean, Canada has the ability to go to 100% renewable energy super easy because they can use their hydro as um, storage, right? They don't even need battery storage, really, because they can use their hydro as storage. Um, so it's just one of these weird things where where I, I love how politicians say, well, you know, I believe in climate, we should do this stuff. But then the question becomes, do you want to shut down all the coal plants in Canada. Well, we need to do that over 30 years. Do you want to move away from gasoline and diesel and vehicles to more sustainable fuels? Well, maybe over the next 50 years, right? I think we need to start looking to these leaders and saying there is real evidence, real technology, real reports coming out of McKinsey and the International Energy Agency and others. Are you willing to actually do what it takes with the same veracity that Harper did on the other side um, towards solutions? Let's take a look at what we do know about how Trudeau differs from Harper. I went through some speeches, uh, some coverage of the campaign, and took a look at what Trudeau said compared to what Harper has done. So Harper called the Kyoto Protocol a socialist scheme and, of course, removed Canada from the treaty in 2011. He made the Keystone XL pipeline one of his top priorities. That, of course, increased tensions between the U.S. and Canada as Obama waffled on approval. He's made tar sands pretty much the exclusive focus of his energy policy while failing to do anything major on clean energy policy. Actually, Canada has lost more than 70% of its market share on clean energy globally. Many of those investments, of course, came from Ontario, as you said, Jigger, and a lot of them were from overly ambitious subsidies, which is a whole different story altogether. But still, Canada has dropped down the global standings. He also created rules uh, in how Canadian scientists could talk to the media about climate change, limiting what they could and could not say. Trudeau does support Keystone XL, but he's staking less importance on its construction. There's a good quote from him recently. He said, unfortunately, Mr. Harper has narrowed the entire relationship with the U.S. to a single point around the Keystone XL pipeline. And uh, he said that he would broaden his approach. He does not support this controversial pipeline that would carry tar sands crude through British Columbia. And he, he promised to. he waffled during the election campaign. It's not dissimilar to Hillary Clinton's position. And he promised that he would convene this summit within a few months of taking office on climate change, invest a couple hundred million dollars annually in new clean energy programs and support the phase out of fossil fuel subsidies. There you go, Jigger. There's one. God knows if that's actually a real action or just talk. Uh, and then he would help provinces establish cap-and-trade programs, and more robust clean energy programs. There's a big difference between these two people. Oh, there's, yeah. a, there's a huge difference. But the question is whether the New York Times you know, headline said, Justin Trudeau is expected to set a pragmatic, not partisan course in Canada, which is fine. But you know, like the climate doesn't need pragmatic. The climate needs people with the same veracity that Stephen Harper had just on the other side. Yeah, we'll have to see what you know, what, what he actually does, but he does want, you know, targeted federal funding on climate the same way they do healthcare. So it'll be interesting to see how that kind of, uh, spins out through policy. Catherine, tell me something I don't know. Well, I don't know if you don't know this, but maybe other people listening don't know it. So the EPA is finally going to publish their clean power plan in the federal register tomorrow, Friday, the 23rd. Um, and it's the largest, evidently the largest rule ever published in the Federal Register. And the reason it's taken so long is because they had to do all of these like corrections of commas and semicolons and spelling. And so the Federal Register folks have to edit it and then and then EPA has to go back through it. And it's thousands of pages. Um, but what this does is it, it publishes the final rule. It allows those 15 states that were blocked until publication to go ahead and file their lawsuits. And then it also uh, released the federal implementation plan that has model trading rules for mass and rate-based um, trading and the Clean Energy Incentive Program, you, we get 90 days to comment on the FIP and the CEIP. So that's mid-January. People will be filing comments on those two programs. 
Some people have like Yahoo News as their homepage. Do you have the Federal Register as your homepage, Catherine? <laughs> that's right. Now I have a group of uh, a cohort that's like, all right, we have to keep each other informed. So we do. Jigger, tell me something I don't know. So as of today, the Florida Supreme Court just ruled that uh, the language proposed by the Floridians for Solar Choice Ballot Initiative is unambiguous and single subject, which means now they've cleared the last legal hurdle to get the amendment on the 2016 election ballot. Um, They've got about 183,000 verified signatures, but they need 683,149 verified signatures before February 1st of 2016 if they're going to get this amendment on the ballot. You think they'll get them? I hope so. I mean, I think that, you know, like I've been really critical of the foundations in this country who all like to, you know, try to lobby to get one you know, um, person to change their vote in the U.S. Congress, but, you know, has a hard time coughing up $100,000 for this. But my sense is now that they've passed this legal hurdle, you're going to see a lot of the major foundations open their wallets. And, you know, this is really just, you got to pay, you know, for 200 people to like, you know, go out with clipboards and, and, you know, sign signatures every day. Uh, Mine is an opportunity for people to, to add their voice to an interesting new website, Think Tank. Many in the solar industry may know of a guy named Tor Valenza, known as Solar Fred. He's a very prominent writer, thinker in the solar marketing space. He founded Unthink Solar. He recently became the chief marketing officer of the clean tech communications agency Impress Labs. So I've been following his blogging on solar marketing for years. He kind of breaks down branding efforts of solar companies suggests new ideas for the industry, talks about ads, that sort of thing. Uh, check him out if you haven't read him. And he's also easy to find at Sol- uh, on Twitter at SolarFred. So Tor and the folks at Impress Labs have now rolled out a new solar marketing think tank to start crowdsourcing ideas from people within the industry. And they're going to start hosting thought pieces from people who want to write about what companies are doing, advocacy folks and communications pros could be doing better to make solar more attractive as an idea generally and as a buying opportunity. There are a lot of really smart people who listen to this show. I'm sure you probably have some good ideas. If you do want your piece considered, you can go to Impress Labs and click on the news blog section, impresslabs.com, and you can also connect with Tor by sending him an email at tor at impresslabs.com. It's a good opportunity there, and I, I, I hope to read pieces from our listeners. We have reached the end of the show, folks. Thanks for listening. Thank you kindly to Huawei Technologies for supporting this program. A reminder to check out GTM Squared if you have not already. We will give you a free day trial pass if you email us at squared at greentechmedia.com. You can also find all our free back episodes of The Energy Gang at greentechmedia.com slash podcast or at SoundCloud. If you're new to the show and we are getting new listeners all the time, you can subscribe at iTunes soundcloud and stitcher radio and if you want to suggest stories to cover or send comments we'd love to hear from you email us at podcasts at greentechmedia.com Catherine, enjoy the rest of your week and your weekend thanks i'm off to abu dhabi tomorrow so i'll let you know how it goes have a good trip jigger do you have a child yet no oh my goodness uh, but soon my wife is like 10 days past her due date oh my gosh all right well we're still thinking of you uh have an awesome weekend good luck with Catherine hamilton and jigger shah i'm Stephen lacy and we are the energy gang a production of greentechmedia.com we'll catch you next week